Thank you, Pastor Barger. Good morning. I would like to greet you all today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It is by His grace that we come to worship the triune God. I would also like to greet you of the saints from Harvest Bible Fellowship. We are grateful for the association that we have with this church. And lastly, I'd like to greet you in the name of my, uh, my family, uh, Juliana and Anastasia. We are grateful for your hospitality here this morning. I would ask if you to uh, um, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. Verses 5 through 10. Again, that's 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And I'll ask if you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Hear the Word of the Lord. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. The sermon title this morning is Purging Sin as Fellowship with God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank You that we come together to worship You in the blood of Your Son, Lord, that we are redeemed people uh, by the working of Your Spirit in each of our lives. We thank You, Lord, for this great privilege that we have of Your Word. We thank You for uh, the abundance of uh, reading Your Word this morning. And we pray, Father, that You would minister to us Your Son and that Your Spirit would be at work within us, Father, that Your words would be written upon our hearts and that we would apply these things to our lives and serve you and your Son, Jesus Christ, in faithfulness. And we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and the hearing of it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So ever since Adam and Eve, there has been a slithering serpent that has sought to creep in to break up fellowship with God. The serpent tempted Eve, and in the fall, mankind was separated from God. And their first children, even Cain, suffered the same thing. God said to Cain that sin lieth at the door, and its desire is contrary to yours. Its desire is to have you. Adam and Eve were taken out of the Garden of Eden, away from fellowship with God. And Cain was taken even further from fellowship with God. So, Satan's tactic and sin breaks our fellowship with God. And this is what we want to recover. This is still Satan's tactic even today. And we want to combat this. And this is the point of the sermon. So the the point of 1 John as a whole, as the epistle, is summed up in chapters 5 verses 13 where John says this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John is writing to these brothers, these believers, to encourage them and to bolster their faith. He wants them to have assurance in God who has saved them. 
And the, the epistle at large deals in antithesis. And what I mean by that is two opposing things. John brings up multiple times. There's light versus darkness. There's the love of God versus the love of the world. There's the sons of God versus the sons of Satan. The spirit of God versus the spirit of Antichrist. There's God's commandments versus the man's commandments. And then there's the testimony of God versus the testimony of man. And all of these themes collapse into the one thesis of fellowship with the triune God or fellowship with Satan and the world. And this is why uh, the epistle begins in verses 3 and 4 by saying, Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Fellowship, the point of fellowship, is a fullness of joy in the believer. And this is why uh, the, uh, the apostle is writing these words to these brothers, to give them assurance of their fellowship with God. The outline of this sermon, or as I've broken it up, is into three different sections in this text. Verses 5 shows the fundamental message, which is that God is light. And we'll get into that in a moment. The second section is verses 6 and 7, and it is simply walking in the light of God. And the third section is verses um, 8 through 10, which is approaching the light of God through confession. And the thesis of this sermon is this. If you desire to walk in intimate fellowship with the heavenly Lord, then you must walk a heavenly life by putting to death your sin. That is how we gain access to this God. So let us begin. The fundamental message is that God is light. Look with me at verse 5. It reads, This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you. So he says, this is the message that we have heard of God. This is not something that was devised by the Apostle John. Right? This is not developed by Greek poets. This is not something that was discovered by a new sect of Jews. But rather, this is the very message of God Himself who's writing to us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in, in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So John's declaring to us this message. This is a message that he has heard of him from the, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not something he is conjuring up. This is a fundamental of the faith that we must get right, or else we will have no feet, we have no ground to stand on. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God is the one who's inspiring these words. Yes, man wrote it, but God is the one who is the ultimate author. God is the one who is superintending these words. So this message that the Apostle John is declaring to us is something that we must receive because it is the edicts of the King. Jesus Christ Himself is speaking to us through John. And we must get that right. This is the certain and object, objective reality of God and the fundamental of all Christian living. If this is not apprehended by faith, then there is no ground by which we may stand. We have to get this right. And this message is declared unto you, he says. This is the preacher's imperative. This is why Paul says in 2 Timothy, preach the word. It is not a mere suggestion. It's not having a round table with a bunch of people with different opposing views just trying to get to the bottom of things. This is God declaring this message to us. 
And we are to receive these. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We must receive these things as the Word of God. We must put them into our homes. We must have them in our Bibles. We must open them and read them to our children. This is something that is declared to us. There is no suggestion here. It is a command. Preach the Word. This belongs to us through God. And how is this word to be received? Two points. By faith and by fear. Psalm 25, 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. Do you fear God? Do you have a fear of God as holy, as righteous, but also as good? That He will show you His covenant when you fear Him. This is how you are to receive the word of God. You are to fear God, knowing that this is, in fact, the edicts of the king. It is the message delivered by a messenger from the God who reigns over all things. And we are to receive it as such. We are to fear God. James says, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. This is how we receive the word of God. We fear him. But not just with fear, but also with faith. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, When ye receive the word of God, which ye heard of us, right, they did hear it from the apostles, ye received it not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. How does this word of God work? It works by him who has faith. You put your faith in the word of God. You say, God is not a liar. God's speaking the truth to me. You receive it in faith. So you must have fear, and you must have faith if you are to receive this word of God. Or, as John is saying here, as he's declaring to you this word of God. A couple of months before my dad had passed away, there was a time when I was sitting in our living room reading the Bible. And he came in, he couldn't speak, he had to be helped walk, to be walked. And he looked over at me reading the word, and he started pointing to me. And I I got up and I went over to my dad and I hugged him. I told him I loved him and talked to him, asked him how his day was. And then I sat down. But I didn't understand my dad rightly. When I sat down, I started reading again. And he started pointing more ferociously. And I realized he was pointing at the Bible. That's what he wanted. So I got up and I read to him the scripture that I was reading. I talked with him about it. I explained it to him and I sat down. He pointed more ferociously. This is a man who received the Word of God in fear and in faith. He wanted the Word of God. It's, even though he couldn't speak, it's as if I heard him saying, This is the Word that has eternal life. This is what will save me. He recognized that. And that's how we are to receive the Word of God. We are to fear God, yes. We're also to have faith in God. And what is this message that John is declaring to us? It's this, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, there's two things that we can observe by the expression that God is light. One, His moral purity, and two, His omniscience, or specifically, His ever-watchful eye. So, when we talk about God's moral purity as seen in Him being declared as light, what do I mean by this? I mean the same thing that Isaiah meant when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain, or two, he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. 
and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. John records for us that what Isaiah really saw was the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. Isaiah is looking up and he's beholding the glory of the Lord. The light of the Lord is shining upon him. And what is his first response? Immediately he takes it as a moral thing. He doesn't merely just say, oh, the light's hitting me, it's exposing me. But this is used as a euphemism in Scripture to show that sin is being exposed. Even the holy heavenly beings are covering their face and feet before the holy God. That is a bewildering thought to us. That even the angels who are living in perfection in heaven still cover their faces before a holy God. We should not think that whenever we behold the Lord in glory that we also won't be doing the same thing. If we're going to be doing that for eternity, why don't we start now? Why don't we cover ourselves with Christ to behold the glory of the Lord? This is how we are to live our lives. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Isaiah's response to this light that he saw is, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is a moral thing for him. He says, I am undone. He could have been walking with his fellow Israelites and viewed himself as being a man of God. And yet when he is comparing himself to the Lord of glory, what does he do? Woe is me. What did Adam and Eve do whenever they sinned? They went into the bushes to hide. Woe is me. This is the attitude that we must have as a Christian. Woe is me. I am undone, for mine eyes have seen the Holy One, the Lord of hosts. That's who we have seen. Spurgeon says, Light is painful to eyes long accustomed to darkness. Brothers and sisters, our eyes have been long accustomed to darkness. We've walked in the ways of this world. We've sinned against a holy God. And when we have come to Him, we say, woe is me. But praise be to God that we come to Him through Christ. We come to Him through Christ. So do not compare yourself to the world any longer. Don't compare yourself to your fellow churchmen. Compare yourself to Christ. That is how you are to compare yourself. He is the standard, not anyone else. And when you look at Him, you say, woe is me. That that helps us to cling to Him in faith. Because we are a worm before God. That's why we love Him. That's why we want to serve Him. So the first thing seen in in God is light is His moral purity. The second thing we see is God's omniscience, or specifically His ever-watchful eye. When you walk into a dark room, what do you normally do? You flick the light switch on so you can see. So light is also used as another euphemism for being able to observe things, being able to see. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God searches all things out. But you say, oh, I go to the deepest, darkest cavern, and I hide there. I do my sin there. Well, Psalm 139 says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be my light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. 
There is no hiding from God. His light searches everything. There is no darkness to God. He sees it all. This is when Jesus says that he knew what was in the heart of man. He sees all of it. He knows what man is like. God knows us intimately. The most terrifying truth in Scripture is that God is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. He knows us intimately. And this is a cause for concern for us who are unholy. We must recognize that God is upright entirely and that He sees everything. The light of God is like a spotlight in the prison yard. If a man's trying to break out and run away, it shines on you. It's always going to expose you. And Job 34:22 says, "There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. You cannot hide from God. He has more light about you than if you were in the room with the sun. That's how much God knows you. The sun only lights up your outside. God lights it all up. He knows you intimately and entirely. And John begins this way by telling us that God is light and in Him is no darkness. This is the message He declares to us. The reason He does this is to show that there is no fellowship with God unless you are light yourself. For the light has no fellowship with the darkness. And this is why Calvin concludes in this section saying, God does not dwell with darkness. Thus, He takes no part with us. God takes no part with darkness because in Him is no darkness at all. So we need to get a view of God's holiness, and we need to get a view of His ever-watchful eye. He sees all things. You cannot hide from Him. The second section we have here is walking in the light. How do we walk in this light? Well, verse 6 goes on to say, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So he begins here as a warning to the poser. This man says that he has fellowship with God. He might walk around and tell you that he's read all these great works by the Puritans. He might walk around and tell you of the the, the blessing of walking in the heavenly life. This is the talkative man. This is a man who merely says his religion. It's only external to him, but it has not gone into his heart. It's merely something that's on his tongue. So this man says it, but he doesn't walk it. And think of those who say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? And what does he say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. But Jesus, we said it. We said we had fellowship with you. We said we walked with you. Jesus said, I never knew you. So your vain professions mean absolutely nothing. What really matters is does Christ possess you? Is Christ in you? That is the real question. Do not be a talkative man. Don't say you have fellowship with God. Demonstrate it. Think about Judas. The night that Jesus was betrayed, what did he do? He came up and he kissed him and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. He said one thing. He identified with Christ. He said he walked in fellowship with him. And yet the whole while, what happened? He walked in darkness. There's a reason they came in night cover, to come to betray our Lord. And Jesus says of of, uh, Judas that it would have been better for him to not have been born. This is the reality of the person who merely says that he is a believer, who says that he has fellowship with God, 
But ultimately, it is nothing but worthless vanity because this person is not possessed by Christ. Hebrews says that such a man is enlightened and he has tasted of the heavenly gift and that was made a partaker of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. But the root of the matter was not in this man. The root of the matter, it was only on his lips. He only tasted it. He was not in it. If you say that you have fellowship with God and you walk in darkness, you lie. You lie. You do not walk in fellowship with God. What a dreadful thing to have the Lord of glory on your lips, but not actually impacted you in your whole soul. What a dreadful thing. And we need to examine ourselves to make sure that this is not a reality of us. These people, they lie and they do not the truth. What's happening here is they're, what they're proclaiming, they are actually at the exact odds of. This is why John is always talking in antithesis, things that are contradictory to one another. Right? They lie. They say that they walk in the truth, but they lie. It's a clashing of, of, of different views here. They're saying they walk in fellowship, but God is declaring to them that through their walk in darkness, He actually never knew them. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, Ye are of, the, of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So you're either a son of God, or you're a son of Satan. We are all by nature children of wrath. This is why we must have the gospel. If there is no gospel, we don't have anything. We are of people to be pitied. So God is light. God is truth. He does not dwell with darkness nor liars. And this is why Satan in the book of Revelation is declared to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. And what does it say of the liars in a couple chapters later? They are also cast into that same fire. right? And this is not just merely... Um, you're condemned, yes, by your bad works, but you're also condemned, yes, by not believing in the Lord Jesus. It's a both and. That's why they're cast into the hellfire, right? So just because you lie once, it doesn't mean you, you go to hell. That's not what that text is talking about. If you don't have Christ and you commit these evil, wicked works, that's what sends you to hell. And Satan displays that entirely for us. We walk in the ways of our Father if we do not walk in Christ. John Gill says, they do not say the truth nor act according to it. So these people are just merely liars, and they walk in darkness. Even though they say they're going that way, they're going the exact other way. So we need to be very careful with our words. Is what we're saying adding up with what we actually live in our daily lives? If we have a false profession, then we will most certainly have a false religion. And we do not want to have that at all. John three nineteen through 20 says, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because of their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, nor, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. When you walk into the light, this is why God's omniscience is scary to the unbeliever and to us. Because God sees it. Right? You don't want to come into the light because it exposes you. Right, and this is exactly what Satan does. He wants to walk around in the shadows. That's exactly why Judas came in, in, in the cover of night. That's exactly why cr- crime happens at night because God has written this into creation when there is darkness. That's when people want to do evil things. 
And it's a display of their spiritual life that they walk in darkness and they do not walk in the light of God. In verse 7, we see, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So we have just seen a vain profession of faith, a person who merely says that they have fellowship with God. And then we actually have a genuine profession of faith. If we walk in the light as He is in the light. That's a very important phrase. This light is demonstrating that it is outside of us. If we walk in the light, it means the light does not originate from us. Contrary against many New Age spirituality types. They think that we are the light. We, we bring forth truth. Right? No, the light is outside of us. Moral purity and omniscience is outside of us in God. So the light is outside of us. And, and how do we walk in that? Well, Isaiah 9 says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light, hath the light shined. Who is this light? What is this light? Well, if you keep reading Isaiah, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Who is this light? It is Jesus. If you want to walk in the light, you have to go to the light. Who is Christ? That's why Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, the light of life. Upon us, saints, has shined a great light, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we want to walk in the light, because we're pursuing Him. This is why Psalm 36 says, In His light do we see light. We go towards the Lord Jesus. This is the whole point of the Christian walk, is we're heading to the celestial city. This is why I love the book of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it. The Christian, after he leaves his city that's about to be destroyed, he meets evangelist. And evangelist says to him, you see over yonder city gate? He's pointing in the future and Christian starts squinting and he's trying to look out in the future to see it. And he's like, yes, yes, I do see it. And he sees a little glimmer of a light and it gets bigger and bigger to him. This is the Christian life. Here's what I'm saying to you. Do you see Christ seated at the right hand of the Father? Do you see the great light which has shone upon us? Then run to Him. Go towards Christ. That's how you walk in the light. How did Christ walk? Walk that way. Right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's how you walk in the light. Right? If you do not do these things, it doesn't mean that you do them for your salvation, but they are a fruit of it. Jesus is the one who sets us on the highway to God. And now by His grace, we walk in the light towards the celestial city. That is where we are going. We must look to Him and long for Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except by me. Right? He's talking about a pathway. Now Isaiah also mentions another path- pathway. I love this text. Isaiah 35 verse 8. And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. This path of holiness has already been walked by Christ. He's the one who's accomplished all of it. He's fulfilled, for uh, maybe high theology here, He's fulfilled the covenant of works. He's accomplished everything that Christ has required of Adam. 
And now we run towards the Savior. We follow Him because by His grace, He has placed us on the right path. So do we have this genuine profession? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, what happens? We have fellowship one with another. It's a beautiful statement here. Um, This can be understood in two ways. I, you can talk about it in terms of justification. You can also talk about it in terms of sanctification. I think it's helpful to think about it both. I think that is John's aim here in this epistle. So, first off, we have fellowship one with another. This isn't talking about the saints' fellowship together. This is talking about fellowship with God. How do we have that? First off, we have it by way of justification. God declares us right before a holy God by himself. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a peace for you today, if you do not know Christ, that you can have. You can have it only in Jesus. There is no other way. Look to Him on the cross. See the blood spilt from Calvary. See the tomb Him put there. See the tomb rolled away and Him risen and now seated at the right hand of God. He's done it all. Turn to Him and only there can you have peace with God. Only there can you have the fellowship of justification with God. In Ephesians 2, 2.16, He says that He might reconcile both, that's Jew and Gentile, that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. How are we reconciled? How do we have this fellowship? It is through the blood of Jesus. We must look to Him. Only then can we have this fellowship. So we see God is light. We see, woe is me, I am undone because of this holy God. That is a right thought. And that is what should drive you to the cross. Go to the cross of Christ and only then can you have this fellowship with God. He was forsaken by God that we would be beloved by God. What a beautiful truth that is. That the Father crushed His only Son. He was made a curse for us. That's, a, that's why Jesus wore a crown of thorns. It's displaying the curse. Thorns, is a, that, that, thorns comes about through the curse. Jesus was made a curse for us that we can have life. We must only look to Him to be rid of the curse of the fall. No one else can get that. Your good works can't get you there. You being a Reformed Baptist and holding to the confessions can't get you there. It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that you can be beloved by God. And having fellowship with God, we also can see it in sanctification. Another way you can talk about it is our walk in holiness, our our gradual uh, uh, walking in the commandments of God. We see in John chapter 15, verse 14, that Jesus says, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. How are you a friend of Jesus, he says? Do my commandments. This is how you walk in close fellowship and intimacy with God. Do you know God's commandments? Read, read the Bible. That's how you figure them out. You read the Bible to know what God has required of you. Jesus has saved you. He's placed you on the highway of God. Now, how does he grant you joy? How does He grant you this life that you have through joy? It's through keeping His commandments. Jesus says, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I commanded of you. James also says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. 
Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So this is the fellowship of justification that we can have with God. We have fellowship with Him as we purge our sins. This is the whole point of the sermon. Get rid of your sins, and only then can you have this fellowship with God and with Christ. Christ is the lighthouse of our souls, and His commandments are the lamps on the path to the celestial city. We're not antinomians. We don't deny God's law. We recognize God's law rightly, that no man is justified by workings of the law except one, Christ. Christ ultimately is the one who has accomplished our salvation through keeping the law perfectly. But now in our salvation, this true saving faith that God's given to us and the grace of repentance is kept through the Spirit's working in our lives to put to death our sins. So we see that we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Does walking in the light cleanse us of our sin? Some people might say that from this text, which I think is absolutely absurd, because when you just read it, that's not what it says. The blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from our sin. Right? This might be understood again in two different ways. And as I was doing my own study on this, uh, Calvin said that this is only talking about sanctification, Um, John Gill said this is uh, only talking about justification, and he emphasizes we've been cleansed from all sin, and Gill says this is is, uh, clearly justification. And Spurgeon takes a nice middle road saying that both of these things are true realities, and when we hold them both up, we see a, a glorious picture here. So the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins and justification, and our being, uh, also in our being born again. So Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Even as David also describeth the blessing of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is the blessing of justification. That through faith our sin is not imputed to us. It's not credited to us. But our iniquities are forgiven in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all of our sins. When we put our faith in Christ, our sins are cast away. They're cast into the bottom of a pit. Or more appropriately, they're actually nailed to the cross. As Colossians says, they're nailed to the cross. Isaiah 1, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is the blessing of Christianity. No other worldview, no other religion provides such a blessing. Zeus doesn't weep for us. Aphrodite doesn't come and comfort us. Jesus condescended. He came down, stepped down from His glory in heaven, and He died a criminal's death on our behalf. He was our substitute. When you see uh, before Pilate, Barabbas and Jesus put up together, we're Barabbas. We're the sinners who are supposed to be executed. But Jesus Christ saves us. He got in our place. This is the beauty of Christianity. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. If you come to Christ today, all your sins will be dealt with. As you go out into the world and you deal with the pagan, that's what you say to them. You say all your sins can be done away with. All of them. But I've murdered all of them. All of them can be done away with by Christ because He took the penalty that we deserved. That's why we believe in the penal substitution, penal penalty. 
Christ was our substitute to pay the penalty that we deserved. This is not some pagan theology. This is the crux of Christian living. And we must believe that. We can also view this verse in terms of sanctification. right? Jesus cleanses us daily throughout our lives. And I can see this most clearly in John chapter 13. When Jesus... uh, 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 when he was uh, doing the Lord's Supper, he took off his outer robe and he started to wash his disciples' feet. So when he, when he does this, he says to, um, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he told Peter, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean. Okay, so he says to Peter, you are clean, but you need to, you, there is something you need to wash. You need to wash your feet. So Peter's having this internal struggle. He doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. Um, You will have no fellowship with me. And Jesus says, well, wash all of me. Wash my head, my ears, my everything. Wash every bit of me because I want to have a part with you, Peter says. And Jesus says, not everything. You're already clean. You just need to have your feet washed. Brothers and sisters, we walk in sin throughout the week. We repent of those sins, or we ought to. And when we come to Christ, He cleanses us every single day when we come to Him in repentance. And this is what Jesus is displaying to us here. He's cleaning our feet. Come, let Christ clean your feet. This is how you have fellowship with Him. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. So not only do you have fellowship with God in your initial initial justification with Him, when you're born again, you start walking on the path, but also through the path. The blood of Christ sustains you every single day. Spurgeon says, If guilt returns, his power may be proved again and again. There is no fear that all my daily slips and shortcomings will not be graciously removed by this precious blood. This is why we can sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but it. You're washed initially in justification. But we should not be so foolish to think that we've begun by the Spirit and now we start walking according to our own flesh. That now we have the power to do it. We need to come to Christ and have Him wash our feet. We have daily need, Spurgeon says, to have Christ's blood remove our sins and our guilt. John Owen says, Just as we are justified by the blood of Christ, so we are sanctified by the blood of Christ. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is our song as a Christian. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is why John writes in uh, the second chapter, he says, my little children, right? My children, you believers, the people who are already justified, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If there are any saints here today, who have grown weary, who are overburdened by your sin, remember that there is a loving Savior for you. There is the Advocate with the Father who will wash away your sins today. Anyone who's an unbeliever, Christ will wash your sins away today. But for us believers, this is also true. And I'm convinced that this is a very important topic that believers need to recover. That it is not just the initial washing, but we have daily need for the washing of Christ If you are concerned about your state before God and either your justification or sanctification, turn to the cleansing power of Christ's blood, which is sufficient for all of your sins.
Christ's blood is entirely sufficient for us. Excuse me. <clears throat> the third section of this sermon is approaching the light in confession. Right? We saw the vain profession. We saw a genuine profession. Now we see how do you approach this light? It's in confession. We look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There is no coming to the light if you reject your sin. There are many who look at this verse, and they look at it rightly, and they see the Wesleyan error of perfect sanctification. And they say, we will never be without sin in this life. And that is true. But oftentimes I think we might really miss the entire scope of this verse, that this is also talking about the person who denies their sin in history, in life. Cain denied his sin when God came up to him and said, where's your brother Abel? He says, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? He denied his sin. He was saying to God, you're a liar because I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know. I'm not not my brother's keeper. This is a huge error that we can commit even today. Numbers 32, 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. All your sin will find you out because remember, God sees everything. Your sins will always find you out. To acknowledge that you are free from sin is to display your lack of fellowship with God. You will be like a cow led to the slaughter. That's what sin does to you. Sin takes you out of fellowship with God and it treats you nothing but cattle. Just fattens you up, just like the evil witch in that old story. Fattens you up, takes you to the slaughter. That's what sin does. And that is not how you have fellowship with God. God fattens you up with the fullness of joy in Christ. And this is what we ought to search for. And if you struggle with this today, if this reality is pointing to you, that you say, oh, my particular sin, it's not... I'm not actually doing it. I'm not, I'm not committing that sin. This is why I would ha- invite you to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. That's what we ought to pray. Search me, God. I don't know what my sins are, but search me. Search them out. You say in your word that you are light. And I know from the, from the sermon that this means that you search the depths. I can't hide anything from you. So God, search me and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray that prayer. Pray it genuinely, not just because I'm telling you to. Pray it because you are overburdened with your sin and look to Jesus Christ. We also see in this verse the self-deception. We deceive ourselves, it says. This is not just mere intellectual deception. This is moral deception. God gives men over to a reprobate mind, as it says in Romans. And, Ephesians says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. We need to recognize that this reality, that a self-deception doesn't come from ignorance of, of, of intellect. It doesn't come from not understanding something right or not being able to piece together the arguments. It comes from a moral standpoint. The reason that people reject God is for that very reason. They know that they are dark. They walk in darkness and God is light. So this is what we have here. They deceive themselves in this moral way. They say to God, I have no sin. 
God, God, if, imagine God going up to Adam and Eve and Adam saying back to them, we didn't do anything wrong. Or God going to Cain like when he says, what have you done? When, he, when it's before uh, Cain that he slew his, his brother Abel. And, and Cain's like, I didn't know that was wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how we act at times. I've had a, a brother come up to me and has, has confronted me in my sin and I told him, like, no. I, I used a, a bunch of gymnastics to get, out of the, to get out of his point. That is not something we should be doing. We should not use theology to jump around to get out of our own sin. We need to confront our sins biblically if we want to have fellowship with God. Spurgeon says of this verse, The Lord cannot stand with us on the platform of seeming and appearance, but only on the ground of what we really are. What are we? Has Christ set us on the highway to his city? Or are we merely just having a vain profession? Are we just lying? So what is the remedy for this issue that we saw in verse 8? Of a person who says that they have no sin. Of this person who deceives their own self. Well, it is confession. This is verse 9 right here. Look with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's back up. If we confess our sins, what does it mean by true biblical confession? I think that in our society, in American evangelicalism, we miss a huge piece of biblical confession. I, I see two main aspects of confession here. Psalm 32, 5, David says, I will confess my transgressions. This is saying to God what you have done wrong. Lord, I've stolen. That's against your law. That is biblical confession. That's true. But there's another piece of it. Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and confesses and forsaketh them shall have mercy. This is the piece that we miss in modern evangelicalism. If we want to have this fellowship with God, we can't just go sin, get on our knees, and say, Lord, this is, this is what you've said in your commandment. This is wrong. I'm agreeing with you. Um, Lord, forgive me. And then you go and you do it again. This is not biblical confession. Biblical confession is forsaking your sin. If confession does not lead to forsaking sin, then you are merely doing lip service to God. If forsaking sin does not accompany your, your uh, confession to God, then all you are doing is trying to lie right in front of God's face. When you approach him on your knees. That's all you're doing. You're blaspheming him. You're saying that he's not smart enough to figure out that you're going to go and sin again. That's what you're doing. So when we confess our sins, we should have a resolution in our hearts and and seeking the aid of the Spirit to put to death our sins. This is the constant life of the Christian. As soon as you think that you've dealt with your sins, that's when it will snatch you whole. So when we confess our sins, we say to God, Lord, this is what your word says. This is your commandment. And I have transgressed that. We then say, oh, Holy Spirit, help me to put this thing to death. I need your assistance. Lord, cleanse me by your blood, but also give me the strength to put to bed your sin. Or, sorry, excuse me. That's very wrong. Our sin. To put to death our sin. This is what we need to do. We have to have this in our confession. And unless we do that, we will never have good fellowship with God. 
The grace of God to kill sin does not come by some moment of spiritual ecstasy where our time sinning is done away with. Fell swoop, one, one, one and done. But rather it is done by the secret operation of the Spirit in the life of the humble Christian. This is how we live our life. In humility to God. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one uh, that inhabiteth Sorry, excuse me, that inhabited eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and lowly place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. If we struggle with this, we must humble ourselves before God. We must not think about these spiritual highs of ecstasy with God and that that would deliver us from our sins. Deep emotions of the Spirit working within us. But it is the daily mundane life of killing your sin. We have really lost the mundane Christianity. What does it mean for us all to be priests? Everything is a service to God. Every work, every time some of you women change your baby's diapers, all of that is to the glory of God. We've lost the mundane. And we've said that this is worthless. If I really want to be a Christian, i got to be a pastor. That is a dead wrong sin. If you really want to be a Christian, you must be washed by the blood of Christ. And you must live your life for His glory. So humble yourselves and say to God, Lord, humble me. Create weakness in me. In our confession we see here in verse 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's three things here. He forgives us our sins. He is faithful to do it. And He's also just to do it. He forgives us of our sins. Psalm 103 says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. This is a blessing. We are blessed that God forgives us. He is not obligated to do so. There is no obligation on God's part to forgive us of our sins. But anyways, God did it. And this is a glory that we should have. We should give God thanksgiving that He forgives us. What a huge blessing in the Christian's life. He's also faithful to forgive us. In Hebrews 10, uh, verses 10 and then 14 through 18, it says, For by the one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also it is a witness to us. For after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So when we look at this, Christ died... And He is faithful. Um, in, in His death, God is faithful to us to forgive us of these things because Christ has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Titus 1 says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the ages began. God's faithful to do it. He's faithful to forgive us of our sins because throughout, before time even began, God promised that this would happen. He's also just to forgive us. Romans 3 says, Uh, of the redemption of Christ, whom God hath set uh, forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood 
to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he may be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God is just in our forgiveness because Christ died for us. All of the justice of God that was rightly deserving for us was nailed to the cross. This is why in the next chapter it calls Jesus the righteous one. He's righteous. He's given us his righteousness. He's just to to forgive us because we are now righteous in Christ. He is faithful and just also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it says. And this is a prophecy back from Ezekiel 36. It's, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. We are clean by Christ. He cleanses us. We also see in Titus 2, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So not only does He clean us initially, but He cleanses us of our righteousness as we walk in our daily lives. John is displaying, or excuse me, in 1 John he says, If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. What John is saying here is that a born-again Christian is a person who is a new creature and now walks in the light. In chapter 13, paragraph 1 of the Confession, it reads, They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified really and personally through the same virtue by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. It's the same virtue that we're sanctified of Christ's death on the cross. When we confess our sins, He's also faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We now jump on to verse 10, and it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we refuse to come to this light of God, and instead cling to our sin, we blaspheme the Lord. Job 40, Job is contending with God, and it says, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And Job has a right response here. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Same response as Isaiah. This is the response we have. If you today go so far to say that you have not sinned ever, you make God a liar and his word is not in you, and you need to put your hand over your mouth and do not speak to God, but let him speak to you through his light and his holiness. So God is declaring to us to put our sins away by Christ. This is the whole point of the sermon. If you want to have fellowship with God, put to death your sin. You can't do it on your own power, but rely upon the Spirit's power. Mortify your sin today. We've seen that God is light. He's holy. And yet now we have this new life in Christ, and now we can walk in the light of God. And we've seen that when we stumble on the way, Maybe we go off the path and diverge just for a minute. We confess our sins, and Christ restores us to the joy of our salvation. If you desire to walk in intimate fellowship with the Heavenly Lord, then you must walk a heavenly life by putting to death your sin. And as a benediction to you, I'd like to say, Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. May the light of God 
and the blood of Christ and the fullness of the Spirit be multiplied to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we are grateful for the way in which you minister to us by your Spirit. Lord, we, we, we ask that we would not be people who vainly profess that we have fellowship with you, but that you would restore to us, Lord, the joy of our salvation, that we would realize the light that has dawned upon us in your Son, Jesus, and that we would look to him as our only salvation. We confess to you our weakness, and we ask, Lord, that you would grant us the power to forsake our sin and to walk in communion with you. And we ask that you would do it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.